War will always be hell, but the laws of war are meant to make wars at least a little less hellish. After World War I, the use of chemical weapons was internationally prohibited. In Syria, however, the dictator Bashar al-Assad, backed by the Islamic Republic of Iran and Russia, has repeatedly murdered civilians, men, women, and children, using chemical weapons, gas that has seeped even into bomb shelters. For President Trump, that crosses a red line. He has now twice responded with punitive attacks. By doing so, what has he achieved? And what still needs to be done to protect American interests in Syria and the Middle East? Is there a strategy that makes sense? John Hanna, senior counselor to FDD, has served on the national security teams of both Republican and Democratic administrations. Today, he joins us to discuss the multiple crises in Syria and the broader region. This is Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the we game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. John Hanna, you recently wrote in Foreign Policy magazine that President Trump is due credit. He drew a red line on the use of chemical weapons by Bashar Assad who is backed by Iran and Russia, important to remember, in Syria. When that line was crossed, he imposed consequences. Um, President Trump then announced that a mission had been accomplished. How, how would you define that mission? I think in this case, the president was probably talking quite technically that the military mission was accomplished quite flawlessly. Now, the broader mission, which is was also really quite narrow, I think, in the president's mind, uh, was to reinforce the notion accepted internationally that using chemical weapons, especially against innocent men, women, and children, is beyond the pale and will entail consequences that the United States itself will impose. And I think that message was sent you can argue whether it was sent powerfully enough, but we've had recent experience of a president who sent, set such a red line, the exact same red line, and then didn't act, and we had real consequences from that. Well, I think that's, a, that's an important point. Uh, president Obama set a red line and then decided not to do anything when that red line was transgressed. And I think the first question about what President Trump has done is, to ask the counterfactual, what if he had drawn that red line and then like President Obama said, oh, well, I changed my mind. It's been transgressed and wouldn't even have to hide behind the possibility of an agreement, as President Obama did, um, that, that he could claim would get all the chemical weapons out of Syria. I would argue that agreement was concluded and did not accomplish its particular mission. Um, but let's go through. He, but there are plenty of critics of this uh, of President Trump on this. Let's go through some of their criticisms. There are those who argue 
that chemical weapons um, can't be used to murder uh, civilians, as you say, but that in a sense, President Trump has said, okay, you can use barrel bombs and any other means to kill civilians. We don't really mind. It's just this one technique that we're opposing. What's wrong with that argument? I think it, it, it could be right. Um, I don't disregard that criticism. Uh, on the other hand, the fact that we aren't able to solve the Syrian civil war, that we aren't able to save everybody from uh, each indiscriminate use of force by the Assad regime and its international enablers, doesn't mean we can't do anything. Uh, the fact that we drew this red line regarding the use of the world's worst weapons against innocent men, women, and children, I do think could, over time, establish a degree of deterrence that won't save everybody, but it may well save some innocent Syrian civilians from Assad slaughter. And that's something, and that's something to be valued, uh, in addition to the message it sends more broadly about the use of these kinds of weapons, which, again, is a broadly accepted international norm now for almost a century. And the fact that the United States is enforcing that norm seems to me that we ought to appreciate it. It has real value, even though we recognize it also has real limitations in terms of what it can accomplish. No, I think that's right. I mean, war will always be hell, but there has been an effort made over time to establish laws of war. And the reason for that is to make war a little bit less hellish. There are certain things that honorable armies don't do. If the argument is going to be, unless you can do everything, do nothing, then why not say, so if you want to rape, if you want to pillage, genocide, we don't draw the line and we don't expect anybody else to draw a line in any quarter, on anything. And then why should we obey those laws when our enemies are not and are not suffering consequences for it? So I think, there's, I think there is a strong argument to be made that laws of war need to be enforced. And if the U.S. doesn't enforce them in the current circumstances, nobody will. Now, there are also those critics on the right, not, a, not least, Tucker Carlson, I heard the other night on his show saying he was skeptical that Assad had really been responsible for the use of chemical weapons uh, in this instance or in any other instance. He doesn't quite believe it. What would you say? Is the, the, is the intelligence, as far as we know, not compelling? Do we not know that France and the U.S. intelligence community believes, yeah, Assad used chemical weapons. These were his. I think we do know in that in this case that, in fact, um, our intelligence communities and our political leadership, including Secretary Mattis, who actually was quite forceful throughout the week in saying that he still needed to see and evaluate the evidence uh, before he was prepared to go. And by Friday night last week, he was prepared to go. Uh, and I, th I think that our intelligence communities have concluded that, in fact, this was Assad using these weapons again, and he's used them uh, tens of times over the course of this civil war, various combinations of, of nerve gases and chlorine. Uh, so I feel confident, at least, uh, in this case. And I think there's an awful lot of disinformation, as we know, out there that our enemies, the Russians and, and Syrians in particular, are propagating. Um, we, of course, were supposed to have a, uh, a delegation from the Organization for the Prevention of Chemical Weapons that's supposed to have been going to Duma, the place where these weapons were used over the course of the last week. 
And uh, it's one excuse after another propagated by the Russians and Syrians as they almost inevitably clean up this site and make any kind of verification uh, very near impossible. Now, another criticism of this strike, also largely from the right, but a different faction on the right, I think you might agree with it, is that this strike perhaps was not sufficiently robust, sufficiently aggressive, that not enough was destroyed to firmly establish or reestablish what Mike Pence, the vice president, has called the framework of deterrence. What's your view on that? I'm actually more sympathetic to that argument. That's where I think the real argument lies, whether or not you actually significantly advance the deterrence mission, which was, I think, the primary mission of this, to deter any further use of chemical weapons by Assad. If you actually look at the post-strike cost-benefit analysis from his perspective, his use of chemical weapons almost immediately within 24 hours ended the siege of Ghouta. The rebels gave up, the last remaining rebels, and, uh, and, and left the area. Uh, in return, Assad had to accept a strike that lasted perhaps several minutes that destroyed three buildings in the middle of the night that were apparently completely unoccupied. So you can imagine as he weighs the cost-benefit in his own mind, it may have, he may have said, this is worth it. And if I have to do this again, when I try to get uh, these other rebels out of Idlib or out of somewhere in southwest, uh, southwestern Syria, he may decide he's prepared to, to take that kind of strike again. I don't know that for sure. Nobody can get inside Assad's head. Uh, but I can see that argument being made that maybe perhaps you might have gone bigger and have a, had a more powerful deterrent uh, message to send to Assad. And he probably continues, Assad, to have stockpiles of chemical weapons or the facilities necessary to, uh, to create them? Almost certainly. Now, the question of, of sarin and some of the more uh, really worrisome gases uh, is a separate issue from the chlorine. Chlorine, of course, is commercially available everywhere. Almost every society needs to have large stockpiles of chlorine in order to purify their water. It's the weaponization mm. of that chlorine that is the real uh, problem. So the ability to weaponize chlorine, I, I think at a minimum, we can be sure that Assad will retain that capability. Um, President Trump also deserves and I think has gotten some credit for bringing along um, the French and the British on this mission. They were partners in it. They participated in it. Do you think it's possible that the French and the British said, OK, we'll go along, but we don't want any big strikes. We don't want to take the chance that we'll get into a conflict with the Russians or the Iranians at this point. We want to be very clear what we're destroying, and uh, we want to keep uh, keep strict limits uh, on this attack. You think that's possible? I certainly think it's possible. I obviously, we just don't know. We don't know for sure. I think some of that pressure was even coming from within our own defense establishment, well, who were deeply concerned about uh, the issue of escalation, particularly vis-a-vis the, the, the Russians. Um, so it's entirely possible. I would just say my sense of the specific context in which we faced last Friday night, we're less than a month away from the president's decision about the Iran nuclear agreement and whether to stay in that agreement. And we know that the French and British and Germans or others are really quite desperate to have the United States keep that agreement. 
it's in that context where the United States is also concerned about Iran's non-nuclear activities and its regional activities, particularly in Syria, that I could imagine the president might have had some leverage here and the French and Brits might have had, had more incentive to go farther than they might otherwise have been comfortable with in terms of actually punishing Assad and demonstrating to the United States the utility and effectiveness of that transatlantic alliance and, and the United States working together with, with its British and French allies to try and achieve a, a, a serious and important objective. And regarding uh, internal discussion, what we, I think what we've been led to believe is that James Mattis, Secretary of Defense, didn't want this to go too far, probably perhaps didn't want also to take the chance that this would lead to a, a larger conflict that hasn't been thought through from the Pentagon's perspective and perhaps from the State Department's perspective, not least at a time when you don't have um, a sitting Secretary of State. He might have thought, let's teach them a lesson, but let's not go further. That's also incredible and perhaps more than that, right? Yeah, I think it was a real – it's a clear concern. I think it's been an a ongoing concern by the uniformed military uh, about the mission in, in Syria. Uh, they obviously were all in for the anti-ISIS mission, which they've accomplished to, to, to some degree in terms of dismantling the physical caliphate. There's still ISIS out there in terms of an insurgency and a terrorist threat. But uh, there's been a lot of success achieved. That's a very definable mission that our military understands. Mm -hmm. The rest of Syria, what you do with the Assad regime and the Russians and Iranian influence, it's much less clear to them how you actually achieve your, your objectives there, particularly in a context where it's, it's obvious that the president himself is very conflicted about how much he wants to do in Syria, how long he wants our military to be there. In that context, I can imagine the military is very leery about getting sucked into any broader missions. I, I want to get to that and, and, and delve into those questions with, in, in some depth. Um, before, but before I do, one more question on this part of it. There has been an effort over time to deconflict, as they say, with the Russians in particular, maybe less with the Iranians, who knows. Do you think in this instance, Putin, Vladimir Putin, the, the president of Russia, knew that this was going to happen, knew enough about the extent of it to, to, have, been de, to, to have decided, I am not going to respond in, in any bellicose fashion. I am not going to attempt seriously to shoot down these missiles before they strike. I'm going to let this happen, um, but within the limits that I understand. In other words, was there a discussion of this kind of deconflicting? Did the Russians have the ability to stop this? Or, and they obviously they had some ability to strike back afterwards if they wanted to do so. What do you think the Russian posture was and how much we discussed with the Russians what we were going to do and what we expected them not to do? Again, I don't know for sure, but my guess is that by the time all of the chatter went back and forth between the U.S. and Russian militaries, the Russians probably had a pretty good idea of the type of target set that the United States was interested in hitting. And they felt that the United States had a pretty clear sense of what some of the Russian red lines might be. In fact, the Russian foreign minister Lavrov has said that we were pretty clear about communicating our red lines to the United States about things that we didn't want them to, to hit, particularly anything that would endanger Russian personnel on, on the ground, and that they were quite satisfied in the aftermath that the United States had adhered to those Russian 
uh, red lines. Uh, listen, stepping back, my view with regard to the U.S. military's posture in Syria, uh, I think there's consistently been over the past several years, even before President Trump assumed office under the Obama administration, a certain degree of um, self-deterrence on the part of the U.S. military. You might remember several years ago, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, when discussing possible American actions to punish the Assad regime, whether for chemical weapons or whether for its mass slaughter of, uh, of Syrian civilians or the effort to set up a no-fly zone in Syria that would protect civilians, uh, the Joint Chiefs at that time said, very hard to do. It would take thousands of sorties to take out the entire Syrian air defense system, which is uh, very capable. Um, and I think with respect to the Russians, there's been a similar sense that the Russians are 10 feet tall. The Russians are a real threat to us if we take any kind of action to impose costs against their clients on the ground in Syria that uh, there's a dramatic danger of going up the escalation ladder with the Russians. I think that when you actually look at the correlation of forces in the region, the United States presence and capabilities and professionalism of our forces, I think dwarfs the Russian capabilities in the region. I think Putin knows that. I think the Russian military knows that. And I think that our ability to take risks is probably much greater than, uh, than the U.S. military has been willing to, to admit without the Russians uh, taking on the fateful decision of trying to, to engage with the U.S. over the eastern Mediterranean. I mean, this most recent uh, punitive attack um, certainly suggests that the Russians don't have the kind of a, a, abilities unless they were withholding them. But there's also the fact that Israel has been for some time uh, destroying weapons systems coming in from Iran to Hezbollah in Syria and doing so without regard to uh, anti-aircraft systems, in fact, destroying some of those uh, anti-aircraft systems before they could be used, all of which suggests that the military prowess of the Russians, the Iranians, and the Syrians may have been overrated over the, all this time. Again, that's my guess. I think we, we now know there have been over 100 Israeli military attacks inside of Syria, up to and including uh, attacks directly against Iran most recently and Iranian personnel killing them on the ground. The Israelis have been very active in their, de their own deconfliction channel with the, the Russians, but they have been very clear that uh, about their own red lines and their own determination to enforce those red lines. And the Russian military and Putin have been pretty scrupulous about not challenging the, the Israelis when those actions are, are undertaken. And you've got – it's a hundred – more than a hundred military missions going up directly against the regime in Syria uh, that the Russians have expended enormous resources and even some lives over the past three years trying to keep in power. And yet when it comes to the issue of going up against a, a really first-rate, first-world military like the Israelis or like the United States, I think there's a real degree of caution in, in Putin's calculus. I want to broaden the discussion a little bit. A, a civil war has been raging uh, in Syria for seven years now. More than a half million people have been killed, several million made into refugees or displaced within the country. Um, I think most people understand that. What I suspect is less clear is the extent to which this conflict has become 
internationalized is not simply a civil war anymore. How deeply involved are Iran's rulers uh, as well as the Russians? Now, people don't may not get that entirely. I'm not clear whether President Trump gets that entirely. Um, the idea that we would deploy military force to make sure that the Islamic State doesn't control substantial swaths of territory in the Middle East, but it's okay if the Islamic Republic of Iran controls considerable swaths of territory in the Middle East. In the final analysis, which is more dangerous, the Islamic State or the Islamic Republic? Yeah, I think there's almost no question from a any kind of strategic standpoint, the United States has to be worried, more worried about a nation state of, of 80 million people determined uh, by its own creed to a uh, death to America, a death to uh, some of our best allies, Israel, of course, and, and Saudi Arabia close behind that, that is itself a, a, a revolutionary regime determined to expand its power throughout the region and, and uh, on, a, on a path to, as we still know, despite the nuclear deal, to, to acquire its own nuclear weapons at some point in the not-too-distant future. That, that kind of threat uh, to America, to its position in the region, and to some of our best allies in the region, uh, I think dwarfs any kind of threat we face from a dangerous uh, but pretty ragtag bunch of tens of thousands of, of Islamic uh, jihadists in, uh, in eastern Syria. Also perhaps not fully appreciated the extent to which when we were intervening and fighting uh, in Iraq, yes, we had to fight al-Qaeda in Iraq, which we eventually did rather successfully. When we left in 2011, from the ashes of al-Qaeda in Iraq rose the Islamic State. But a significant number of American deaths, probably at least half, I think, were caused by Shia militias instructed and funded by Iran. Americans, American service, servicemen and women have been killed with impunity by the, this Iranian regime um, in fairly recent times, no? Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, the, the Iranians, uh, I think, as much as, as any other force on the ground in, in Iraq were uh, the most powerful opponent of the American project there to bring some level of stability and representative government to to Iraq. And uh, as you say, killed, uh, 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 I think the best guess are at least upwards of a thousand American soldiers and paid fairly little consequence mm. for that. But this, of course, this is a, a pattern of killing Americans or taking Americans hostage that has been going on for most of the Islamic Republic's 39-year uh, uh, history of existence. And uh, again, with uh, powerfully little cost uh, uh, being paid for the kinds of uh, attacks that they've uh, taken up against, uh, against the United States. President Trump would love to or has said that he would like to remove, to withdraw the, the U.S. forces that are in Syria today. There are not a lot of them, probably about 2,000 as, as I understand it. Um, and there are plenty of people who, who would support that. I think the first question is what are likely to be the consequences if there is such a withdrawal for Syria, for Iraq, for Israel? for Saudi Arabia, for the region as a whole. If we, as we've established, I think, that this is not just a civil war in Syria, it's an internationalized conflict, and Syria is at the center of it, what happens if tomorrow all the U.S. troops say, we've done our job here, 
We've shown that we'll send in missiles uh, if the chemical uh, weapons red line is crossed. Uh, uh, the Islamic State is substantially deprived of its territories. We're done. We're going home. What happens over the months ahead after that? If we leave Syria the way we left Iraq, uh, I think the best guess is that you cede that territory not to some virtuous Kurdish force that's willing to maintain stability there, but you cede it to our, our worst adversaries there, uh, first and foremost, the Iranians, uh, together with uh, the Russians and Assad. I think they consolidate their control over then most, most of Syria. And the Iranian strategic objective of establishing this militarized land bridge from Tehran through Iraq into Syria to the Mediterranean and to the Israeli border, which is Iran's ultimate objective, I think, to be able to, um, to pose that kind of existential threat to Israel across that, uh, Israel's entire northern border. Uh, I think you supercharge Iran's ability to achieve, achieve that objective, and you are then on a, I think, a fairly rapid countdown to some kind of major is direct Israeli-Iranian conflagration in the Middle East that I think it would be very hard for the United States to stay out of. So while the president might think he's withdrawing uh, from Syria and the Middle East, I think the potential consequences of that kind of precipitous withdrawal could be so damaging, uh, could create so much violence and a, uh, a really serious war in the Middle East uh, between two very powerful countries, Israel and Iran, that the United States would, be, would have to turn its attention at much higher cost back to the region very quickly. And also, would you not agree that Iraq would be, in time, sooner or later, ceded to the Iranians. Some would say it has already has been. I think you, your view is that that's not the case yet, but it's a danger that, that lurks. If you leave Syria, why not leave Iraq? Mm, the Iranians are going to be pressing on the Iraqi government to do that, and they'll say, they're going to leave you sooner or later. You better make a deal with us sooner, because if you make it later, you'll regret it. No? Yeah, no, I think that's clearly the the signal that gets sent that the United States doesn't have the, the, the breath or energy to maintain its uh, traditional posture in the Middle East and it's, it's heading for the exits. And in that case, then I think uh, most of our partners in the region, perhaps with the exception of Israel, uh, then begin to engage in all kinds of destructive acts of self-help simply to, to for as acts of survival, they're probably then going to to try and uh, bandwagon with the more powerful force, which will be the Iranians and Russians. It's not only the Iraqis that will do that. It's clearly the Kurds, both in Iraq and Syria, that will do that. And, and I imagine the Turks themselves might, might do that and get in quite a bit deeper with both the Iranians and Russians. And I think President Obama's view was that the regime in Iran would moderate over time. He talked at various points about Iran and Saudi Arabia essentially sharing the region, sharing uh, responsibilities, even hegemony, that that was fine. Uh, I don't think President Trump has the same view of Iran, but he'd be taking a policy that was essentially a replication of Obama's policy without the underlying justification that the Iranians aren't so bad because he does understand what this regime represents. It would be rather incoherent. I think to be fair to President Trump, and we've seen a little bit of this reporting uh, in, in recent days, that while Obama thought that perhaps this vacuum could be uh, 
uh, filled somehow by a uh, uh, by Iranian power, um, and that Iran, is in, in essence, would become a stabilizing force in the region once the Americans had had departed, which was an utterly wrong-headed idea, as we've seen, with potentially disastrous consequences. I think we've seen a bit of talk from the Trump administration that their idea is that America's traditional allies somehow would uh, begin to step up and fill that void left by the Americans in a place like, like Syria, whether it's Saudi Arabia, the Emiratis, the Egyptians, and of course the Israelis at some point coming in through some combination of military and economic and diplomatic power would kind of fill that vacuum left by the departure of American forces. I think it's probably equally wrongheaded and dangerous. I don't have, I've got a lot of faith in Israel uh, but on its own, it may have to take some fairly extreme measures that could lead us to a very dangerous situation with the Iranians. I have got almost no faith in the ability of our Gulf allies, unfortunately, at this point in time to step up militarily and fill any kind of vacuum left by American forces. We've seen the, um, uh, their utter incompetence in places like Yemen. Uh, where they thought they could fight against the Iranian-backed Houthis in a matter of months and eliminate their presence in, in Yemen. And here we are three years later, and we've got probably one of the world's worst humanitarian disasters with a, a war that has no end in, in sight. And the Iranians arguably stronger in Yemen now than they were before the, the Saudis first went in. So I think without American leadership, with American leadership, and the leverage of American power. I do agree absolutely with the president that our local partners and allies throughout this region have really got to step up, stop simply holding our coats and put real resources and power uh, into the pot to help the United States deal with this very serious problem of Iranian hegemony in the region. They're not doing enough. But I think the surest way to make sure they don't do anything uh, and they take some very destructive acts from the point of view of the United States is for the United States to leave the playing field entirely and simply say over to you guys because they won't get the job done. Right. It shouldn't be entirely an American responsibility, but American leadership is probably absolutely necessary. Um, you, you, you can't do this job without that, but our allies need to step up. All right. That brings us to perhaps our last subject, but it's perhaps the most important subject, but you need to understand all this to get to it. And that is that this is a Rubik's Cube. Uh, if you were adv advising the president now, and I'm sure he's hearing from the Saudis and from the Emiratis and from the Israelis, what would be your advice in terms of next steps and in terms of strategy? Is there a grand strategy that suggests itself at this point um, in Syria and the broader Middle East? What needs to be done? Yeah, I, I will probably disappoint. I've, I've sort of worked in government uh, uh, enough to know that um, uh, an awful lot of your time is simply uh, preventing worse things from happening. Well, that's uh, not managing the... conflicts that mm -hmm. really don't lend themselves to great solutions or big victories for the United States. It's really preventing worse threats from, from emerging and managing those that, that exist in a way consonant with American 
interest. The first thing I would say to the president is he's got to clarify to the world what's going to be the American military posture in those lands in eastern Syria that we have liberated together with our Kurdish and Arab partners in that part of the part of the world. The president has got to let people know, signal to people that we are going to be there and that uh, is something that they ought to bank on and begin to plan on together, that we are not going to cede that territory to Iran and the Russians and and the, the murderous regime in Damascus, that we're going to try and uh, do something uh, together with our, our regional partners and partners in Europe and Asia to try and, and uh, stabilize that part of Syria uh, to get something of an economy going there without America actually engaging in all the nation building itself. Uh, Not in the Syria controlled by Assad, but in the Syria where in the Syria controlled in, to, 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 to make a, a workable Syria in those in those parts of, of Syria that that we hold sway without having any illusions that right. we're going to to build anything like a Jeffersonian democracy right. in those places. Safe zones they'd be though. But they will yeah. be safe zones that are in compared to the the hell that exists in in Assad controlled Syria will look better to almost any objective uh, observer. So I think that kind of cornerstone has to be established for for American policy that we are going to control those areas. They have the vast majority, as, as you've written, Cliff, of Syria's oil resources. They also happen to have been Syria's traditional breadbasket. They're mm -hmm. the most, uh, the richest agricultural areas in mm -hmm. Syria. And the forces that we're partnered with happen to have control of some really critical infrastructure in terms of dams and hydroelectric power stations. Those are things, those are real points of leverage for the United States as we look forward eventually a year, two years, three years down the line to any kind of political negotiation that we may get into with the, uh, with the Russians and others uh, about the future of Syria. Uh, holding those, that, that kind of leverage, I think, will be important to make sure that American interests in the future of this region um, uh, are, are paid attention to. So stay in the East is, is, is important. Hold on to those assets. I think uh, second is that you've got to be uh, – make it clear to everybody um, that we and the, and the Israelis are on the same page about the danger we see from an Iranian military entrenchment in Syria that would allow it to complete the strategic land bridge to the Mediterranean and the Israeli border, that neither we nor the Israelis will tolerate that and that we will have something that looks like a common uh, military, diplomatic, economic plan to, uh, to prevent that from happening. Even if the Israelis are doing most of the military work, which I hope would not be the case, but even if it is the case that everybody knows, particularly the Russians and Iranians, uh, and Assad, that Israel has our full backing for that. I think then on the non-military side, you have really got to use the horror of Syria as a basis for imposing real additional costs, economic costs in particular, on the Syrian regime, on the Iranians, on the Russians. Uh, one of our uh, two of our colleagues, Rich Goldberg and Mark Dubowitz, have recently written. <laughs> That, it, uh, that we ought to take advantage of this horrific use of chemical weapons by the Assad regime supported by Iran to begin reimposing some fairly draconian sanctions on the Iranian regime, which has obviously been pouring billions of dollars of resources to prop up Assad 
for most of the last seven years. They ought to be paying a much heavier economic price for doing that, as should the, the regime in Damascus, as should the Russians. So I think we really have to look at our toolkit of economic sanctions. And then I would get back to the point that we discussed previously about getting serious about mobilizing an international coalition to help us in Syria, to support the American effort in Syria, particularly in eastern Syria. That means Saudi money, Emirati money. It could mean some, some uh, military security help in terms of establishing police forces in Arab, uh, Arab areas of eastern Syria that we've, we've liberated. Uh, and it, of course, it means working with our, with our Israeli partners. Um, and then finally, as part of that, I think, again, the, uh, we're talking now to rebuild Syria, to reconstruct Syria. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars that would be required to put Syria anywhere close to the situation it was economically before this horrific war. Uh, the Russians and Iranians can't foot that bill. Um, it would be impossible for them to do so. But would you not agree? We should not foot that we bill. We should not. So that, long as Assad, the Russians, and the Iranians are making themselves comfortable in places like Damascus. I think that's got, that has got to be another essential point of this strategy, that up until the time that, uh, that the Russians uh, are prepared to come to the table in any level of seriousness to talk about a political settlement, not a dime of Western reconstruction money will make its way to the Assad regime that we will not pull this burden off the Russians and Iranians to try and stabilize and rebuild the, the horrific uh, damage that they've done largely to, uh, to, uh, to the Syrian uh, people and the Syrian state. Uh, so I think that kind of leverage and pressure, it may not have an immediate effect, but over time, I, I think it's uh, these are not inconsequential levers that the United States uh, has to um, to play here and to pull here, um, and uh, we shouldn't um, we shouldn't simply throw up our hands and say there's really nothing we can do. We don't have any leverage because, in fact, when you look at it, uh, even seven years into this thing, even with too much paralysis and non-action by the United States. Uh, we've still got some powerful cards to play, and I think we need to try and play those carefully, as you say, as part of a serious strategy uh, that we're going to compete in Syria, in the northern tier of the Middle East, in defense of our vital interests, in defense of our allies, working together with our allies to try and, and, and secure American interests and combat the very real threats we face there, particularly from the Islamic Republic of Iran. And, and among those allies are Syrian Arabs. Not a lot, but there are some. And of course, Kurds. I would hate to see myself, I think you'll agree, that those allies should simply be abandoned. We're going home. We've had enough here. You'll have to fight, die, or make cut a deal with whoever comes here next. I would hate to see that. I think that would not be good for America's reputation or good for America to abandon those who have fought with us. Yeah, I think it would be quite catastrophic for us simply to abandon them. Does that mean we don't also exercise leverage on their ambitions and what they want? Um, should we be supporting a Kurdish state in, in Syria? I would say probably not, given the, the complexities of the geopolitical puzzle that we face there, particularly with, with, with allies in Turkey that have um, – traditionally been important and influential, if not always helpful to the United States. I do think we've got to figure out this Turkish 
Kurdish part of the puzzle, uh, but it certainly doesn't mean at the cost of selling out the, the Kurds either to the Assad regime or to, to Turkey. Uh, definitely not. So it's, you know, I, I think in a way what you're saying is that while it's lovely to think of a strategy that leads to victory, uh, the surrender of one's enemies and a ticker tape parade, in reality, it may be enough to frustrate your enemy's ambitions over a long period of time and through attrition push them back and not allow them to achieve what they want to achieve because it's not in your interests or the interests of your allies to let your enemies continue to improve their positions on the chessboard. Sometimes that's, that, that is the essence of policy and strategy and the best you can do but still worth doing. Am I, do I, is that a fair way to sum it up? I, I think that's very fair. Uh, listen, there's lots of downsides to staying in Syria, lots of risks uh, and costs, costs that I think are, are sustainable, but people can argue about that. But I think it's almost certainly would be worse if we, if we left. Yeah, I, I, the, the, the prospect of a long-term, low-intensity conflict, something like the Cold War, which was kind of that, is not appealing. But the alternative in this case, or during the Cold War, was not peace. It was either a major conflict later, or it was kind of slow motion surrender. Um, that would not have been the right policy during the Cold War. Most of us agree it's not the right policy now. Jihadism is every bit as dangerous as now as communism was in the last century. I think that's right. I think, you know, the, the fight against communism, as people said, was a long drawn out twilight struggle. And sometimes that's the best you can do over time. And then suddenly um, comes Ronald Reagan in the late 1980s. And to the surprise of an awful lot of people, the Soviet system implodes from within. And I think it's a worthwhile reminder that both the Russian regime under Putin and in particular, the Iranian regime right now uh, under Khamenei and the Ayatollahs, they have some real vulnerabilities and weaknesses as well, certainly in their economies. And I would say in Iran now, as we've seen since the beginning of this year, yet again, uh, large numbers of Iranians that really oppose this system. And I think the more time that we can uh, buy for that to churn inside of the Iranian system, the more help that we can give those Iranians, even as we're blocking Iranian advances for the revolution in other parts of the region, I think over time this can really play to our, our advantages in ways that we really can't even imagine now. So sometimes buying time, blocking your enemies, from achieving victories uh, rather than necessarily achieving great victories yourself. Uh, things happen over time. Surprising things can happen. And um, I think that there's, uh, there's at least some reason to suspect that uh, by staying in Syria, by continuing to compete vigorously together with our friends, particularly democratic friends like the Israelis in the Middle East, uh, against the, uh, the strategic threat of, of, of Iran and other adversaries um, really will hold us in good stead over, over time and, uh, and lead to good things, better things in the future. John Hanna, thanks for your incisive analysis and for what sounds to me like a commonsensical approach. And thank you for joining us today on Foreign Policy. Thank you, Cliff. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Foreign Policy. As always, find and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. 
If you like this week's episode and have feedback for us, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd appreciate your thoughts, your praise, your suggestions, your criticisms as well. We hope you'll join us again in the future. Until then, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy. Foreign Policy.